0: The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles uh, uh, with me and open up to uh, 1 John. Uh, We're going to be in 1 John uh, this afternoon. Are you ready for Christmas? Uh, That's a question that I've heard a lot, and what people people usually mean uh, by that question is, have you decorated yet? Have you uh, prepared your dinner yet? And perhaps what people mean most often by that question, are you ready for Christmas, is have you purchased your gifts yet? Uh, The most common tradition of Christmas is the giving of gifts, and uh, there's nothing that's wrong with giving gifts to family and friends and to, to loved ones, uh, but I think we could all agree uh, that it can become too much of the focus and that it can get way out of control. Uh, a lot of people are spending uh, what they don't have uh, to buy what they can't afford uh, for people who don't need them, and the priorities are often so misplaced. I remember a number of years ago, I was at a bus stop And uh, I was sitting next to this one individual uh, who was telling me how he was going to make sure that his girlfriend had a great Christmas this year. You know, he's saying, you know, I'm going to make sure my baby has a great Christmas. My baby's going to have a good Christmas. And then he opened up his book bag uh, to show me a couple of phones that he stole from his government office. He was planning to give his girlfriend uh, some stolen phones for Christmas. And it gave me a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel with him. Uh, because that's no way to celebrate the gift of Jesus Christ. I was told another story uh, where there was a car thief, and he was about to steal a car on Christmas morning, but before he drove off, he noticed that there were some packages wrapped in the the back seat, and uh, so he took the packages out, dropped the packages off at the front door, and then proceeded to drive away with the stolen car. Uh, This secret Santa Uh, wanted to uh, show that he had a heart because he left the gifts, uh, because after all, this is the season for giving, even if you're the grand theft Santa. But that's no way, again, to celebrate Christmas. How do you celebrate the Holy Child of Bethlehem? It's about so much more than the gifts that we give, or the lights that we decorate with, or the Christmas parties that we attend. It's about so much more than just having a holly jolly Christmas saying hello to friends we know and having a cup of cheer. You're not truly celebrating the gift of Jesus if you're not celebrating the reason that Jesus came in the first place. And why did Jesus come? Listen to First John chapter 3 and verse 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus was sent on a sin-destroying mission. Destroy means to render inoperative, to render powerless, to break the control of. And we know that he was sent to to seek and to save. We understand that. Uh, Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 uh, says that Jesus was sent to seek and to save that which was lost. But Jesus was also sent on a mission to seek and destroy the works of the devil. Not just to seek and to save the lost, but also to seek and destroy the works of the devil. And that was the promise from the very beginning. Back in Genesis chapter 3... We learn about the corruption of God's original creation through the introduction of sin. When mankind took the forbidden fruit, he presented himself and all that he owned as slaves to sin. And that was the work of the devil. Over in Romans chapter 6, in verse 16, it says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death Or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And mankind presented himself as a slave of sin that resulted in death. That was the immediate spiritual death that happened. Separation between mankind and God. Man was kicked out of the the garden, Genesis 3.23. There was the eventual physical death that also happened to Adam and Eve. Adam died in Genesis 5, verse 5. And apart from the intervention of God... That would be followed by an eternal death and separation from God and hell. And that's all the result of the works of the devil. And as First John 5, 19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We're all born into that same condition. But Jesus was sent to destroy the works of the devil. And that's the, the promise from Genesis 3, Genesis 3, 14 and 15. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And listen to this, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The promise from the beginning is that there would come a seed of the woman to bruise the head of the serpent, to give him a, a mortal blow, to crush the head of the snake, and that promise was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. And there's no way to celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ if you are celebrating your sins at the same time. You cannot celebrate Christ and celebrate your sins at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. That's what Christ came to destroy. And how do you celebrate the the coming of, of Christ if you're not also prepared to celebrate what Christ came to do? He came to destroy your sins. Are you prepared to celebrate that? Are you prepared to celebrate the destruction of your sins? Because that's what this is about. Come thou along, expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Free from what? From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. And for this year, for our Christmas message, we'll be taking a look at the incarnation from 1 John chapter 3, if you're not already there. Uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is a, a theme that we can find all over the scriptures, uh, which means that we're not restricted to the birth narratives uh, that we find in Matthew and Luke in our consideration of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. Uh, we could literally talk about the incarnation from cover to cover in the Bible. You know, we already talked about Genesis 3, uh, where there was a promise of a seed of a woman, a reference to the virgin birth. So we could go from Genesis to talk about the incarnation, and we could take it clear over to the book of Revelation. Revelation 12, verse 5 speaks about a woman, in this case, a reference to Israel, who gave birth to a son, Revelation 12 and verse 5. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. We could literally talk about the incarnation from cover to cover in the Bible. And that's part of the joy of, of Bible study. Uh, because I'll, I'll never run out of material for as long as I live. You know, the, the, the scriptures just get deeper and richer as the years go by. And that's one of the many confirmations that this book is divine because it's inexhaustible. Inexhaustible. Let's take a look at First uh, John Chapter three and verse five. Uh, we're just going to focus on on verse five, uh, but uh, I'll go ahead and uh, and read a little bit earlier than that because this is a uh, a text that uh, starts uh, even at verse four uh, for the context. I'll just read uh, the entirety for our uh, consideration uh, together. First John uh, chapter three, uh, starting at verse four. First John chapter three, starting at verse four. Everyone who practices sin. Also, practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as He is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, for the power of it, for the clarity of it. My Father, I pray that none of us would walk away confused about uh, what the scriptures mean by what they say. The scriptures are so clear. My Father, the difficulty comes because we don't want to accept what the scriptures say. It's not that the scriptures are muddled, confusing. My Father, the the scriptures are meant to bring light. Uh, So, Father, I pray that the light of your word would shine brightly today. In Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Now, like I mentioned, verse 5 is part of a larger discussion that starts at verse 4, ends at verse 10. It's all about practicing righteousness and how the practice of sin is incompatible with the new life of the believer. It doesn't fit. It's inconsistent. It's a contradiction. And actually what John says, it's an impossibility. It doesn't work. And one of the ways to discern a child of God from one who is a child of the devil is by their habitual practice. What is their habitual practice? And this was helpful for John to point out because there were false teachers. First uh, John chapter three and verse ten says by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. He says, you know, you need to know who these false teachers are, and God has made it clear by their practices. It's it's obvious, he says. Manifest. It's made clear. It's not that hard to tell. It might be hard to admit, but it's not hard to tell who is a true Christian. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And John is not saying that believers never sin. But what he is saying is that believers do not practice sin. They can't stay there. That's not their home. That's not their address anymore. There's a difference. Of course, believers sin. We know that. First John chapter one and verse eight says, "If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Believers should be the first people to admit that we sin. But practicing sin, living in sin, is not the practice of the believer, because it's against the new nature that God has given to us. There, there's a, a new life that's been given to the believer, a new transformed life that functions differently than the old life that we used to have. We are not in darkness anymore. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8 says, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Your very nature is transformed. You're a new kind of creature. Second Corinthians chapter 5 uh, verse 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You're, you're a completely new creation. Uh, I love the illustration that our, our friend Kerry Hardy used while he was here. He says that the old unredeemed man is like a, like a fish with gills. You know, it can live in the water of this sinful world because that's the natural habitat for the fish. It can live there. But the the new redeemed nature has lungs that that breathe celestial air and the, the air of righteousness. And that's the habitat for the new creature. So we can hold our breath for a minute, jump in, but we can't stay there anymore because that's not our nature anymore. I cannot live like an unredeemed person because that's not who I am. And there's another reason that we can't live in sin anymore. And it has to do with the coming of Jesus Christ. And the purpose for his appearing. And there's there's two sin destroying realities that the incarnation of Christ brings, both found in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5. And the first is this what is the purpose of his appearing? What is the purpose of his appearing? Again, verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to do what? To take away sins. And first of all, how do we know that we're talking about about Christ here. It just says, you know that he appeared. How, how do we know that the he is Christ? It's because of the context. In uh, verse 5, you know that he appeared, that Greek word uh, phanerao, uh the word for appear, it's a word that means to make visible, to make clear. It's a word that was specifically used uh, for the word of God made flesh back in chapter 1. So why don't you flip back uh, to chapter 1 in 1 John real quick, uh, just to explain this to you. John, the, uh, the disciple of Jesus Christ, the apostle of our Lord, opens up the first letter with a lengthy defense of the word of God made flesh. Listen to the way that John speaks about the true humanity of Jesus Christ, starting at verse 1. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And John here is, is very concerned that his readers understand that Jesus was a literal, physical, flesh and blood person. And, and he goes through these great lengths to describe the physical interaction with Jesus. He says, we, we've seen him, but how did, how did we see him? With our eyes. That, that's, that's to say that, that he's not a vision. He wasn't a dream. He wasn't some kind of spiritual or mystical experience. We, we might say, I saw him with my own two eyes. It was a, a physical scene. We've looked at him. That's to say he was he was truly present. You know, just as real as this pulpit is, just as real as this Bible is in front of me. He was real. We looked at him. We beheld him. He was he was on full display. That word for looked at is the Greek word theomai, where we get our English word theater from. It's to be on full display. He was before us. He wasn't shrouded in the in the darkness and the shadows. He, he was out in full display. I know what I saw. And we touched how? With our hands. With our hands. Again, John is very specific. We didn't touch him with some kind of stick and poke at him. No, I touched him with my own hands and I know what I felt. That was not a ghost. We even know the apostle John, who wrote this letter, leaned on the chest of Jesus during the Last Supper. Over in uh, John 21, verse 20. It says, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, a, a term that John often uses for himself. You know, why, why call yourself John when you can call yourself the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? He says, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at supper. That, that word for, for bosom or breast in the, the King James is the word stethos. Stethos or stethos. Does that sound like a word you might know? Ever heard the word stethoscope? comes from the same word To see in the chest by listening to it. It's an interesting connection uh, that's made between that word and and our word stethoscope because the apostle John was literally close enough to hear the heartbeat of the Son of God as he leaned on his breast during supper. John was that close. He says he was real. (laughs) I'm telling you he was real. I touched him. I leaned on him. John goes on to say what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life the word which brings life or the word which is life and that life was manifested it was revealed to us it was made known to us it was made clear to us this is the same word that's the same word fanarao, that we find over in 1 John 3 and verse 5 and it's John's way to say that Jesus was real flesh and blood human being he was in the flesh literally incarnate in the flesh that's what incarnate means incarnate in the flesh, in bodily form, Jesus was not a phantom, he was not a ghost, he was not a spirit, he was not an angel, he was not a vision, he didn't exist as a symbol or as an idea, he did not just appear to be human, Jesus was truly human. And that's what we celebrate during the season, isn't it? That, that the word of God was made flesh. You know, that, that Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, says it well, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold Him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as men with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel, and the purpose for that appearing, even from the time He was born as a baby, was to take away sins. That's why He was born. Matthew chapter one twenty one. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Mary would bear a sin bearer. Mary would bear a sin bearer who would take away our sins. Same message that John the Baptist had over in John 121. Behold, the Lamb of God, who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. That's what he's come to do. The Lamb of God is here, and he's going to take away the sins of the world. And and John's words actually gave an early indication of how Jesus would take sins away. Because there was only one way that the lamb would take those sins away, and it was by dying as a sacrifice, right? That's, That's the kind of connection that the Jewish audience would have made when they heard Jesus being referred to as a lamb, because lambs, in particular, were the primary animal of sacrifice. Lambs were offered up. For purification, dedication, peace offerings, guilt offerings, sin offerings, burn offerings. Lambs were the primary sacrifice for sin. The guilt of the nation was transferred to the animal and the animal was slain. And that's what Jesus would be. The sin-bearing substitute. 1 John 1.7 says, The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And 1 Peter 1.19 says, With precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And Jesus was able to do what no animal sacrifice could ever do, because the animal sacrifices couldn't actually take your sins away. They could cover over your sins temporarily, but they couldn't remove your sins. That's what Hebrews chapter 10 says. Hebrews 10 11 and 12. Every priest stands daily ministering, offering time after time after time the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. They offered up all these sacrifices, but none of them took the sins away. They they covered them over until a later time when you had to do the same thing over again. But Jesus performs the once and for all sacrifice that can actually remove our sins. Take them away. Take them away, right? Jesus would be that one sacrifice, and he could deal sin a mortal blow. That Greek word for take away, Iro, means to lift up, to raise up, to take upon oneself, and Jesus was able to do that once and for all. He took sins away. And if you're here and you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, do you understand that if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ to take your sins away, that your sins are still in your possession? That if he has not taken your sins away, that you're holding on to your sins? Do you understand that? And one way or another, your sins will be destroyed. So, so either Jesus takes them away and destroys them for you, or you hold on to them, and you will be destroyed with your sins. But one way or another, sins must be destroyed. 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John two fifteen: do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away. And also, it's lust. But the one who does the will of God, he lives forever. If if you're still holding on to your sins, you're still holding on to this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, I'm holding on to that. That's what's near to me. That's what's dear to me. You will be destroyed along with it because sins must be destroyed. And unless you're ready to let go of your sins, you will be destroyed with your sins. Let it go. (laughs) Let it go. Let it go. What are, what are you holding on to it for? Let it, let it go. And if you want to know what would bring honor to Christ, it would be letting go of your sins. That's, that's how you give honor to Christ. Let, let your sins go. Turn away from your sins. Trust in Christ. Trust, trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're here and you're not a believer and you're listening to this, you need to turn to Jesus Christ. God is not impressed by how bright your lights are, how tall your tree is, how merry your celebration might be, how many gifts you've brought. He has come to destroy your sins. That's what Christ has come for. That's, that's what he's interested in. I'm, I'm interested in destroying sins. I'm not interested in all the, the celebration. He has come to destroy sin, and that's what honors the coming of Jesus Christ. Confess your sins to him and receive the forgiveness that's offered through his death, his burial, his resurrection. Jesus Christ did what no man can do, He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He died as a substitute on the cross, a death that we couldn't bear. He rose again from the dead to prove that he had power over the grave. And he invites all who would turn to trust in him to come and find life. Come to me that you might have life. Jesus Christ offers his life in exchange for yours. Would you you trust him? Would you turn to him? But there's more to what John says back in 1 John 3 and verse 5. And I want want you to see this. I want you to see this. 1 John 3, verse 5. He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Plural. He speaks of sins in the plural, which doesn't refer to sin as a category, as a a lifestyle, but as the individual acts that are committed against him. And if you pay attention to the context, what John is discussing in this context is not the, the principle of sin, but the practice of it. In other words, he's not talking about the fact that we're sinners, he's talking about the habitual practice of sinning. Look at verse four, just look at the context, verse four. Everyone who does what? Practices sin, also practices lawlessness. Verse six, no one who abides in him sins, talking about the the continual practice of it. Verse eight, the one who practices sin is of the devil. Verse nine, no one who is born of God practices sin, So when John says in verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, what is he talking about? He's talking about the practice of sins. He's not simply saying that Jesus died to pay the penalty of our sins. That's true. We understand that. That's what justification is, right? That's when the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us by faith. We trust in Christ He gives us his righteousness. He takes our sins. That's what happens in justification. The moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, he takes your sins away. 1 John 2 verse 12 says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. We know that, that Christ forgives sins. But he's not talking about that justification, that transaction that takes place. He's also not talking about the future freedom from the presence of sin. That's what our glorification is all about, right? First John chapter three and, and verse two, it says, "Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as uh, what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. That's glorification. when we're like Christ, when we're in His presence and we become like Him." But John here is talking about the practical removal of the practice of sinning that happens during this life, the, the progressive sanctification that's a result of our regeneration and I know this might be a little more theological than you're used to for a Christmas message, but I'm not gonna apologize for that. <laughs> Scripture describes this regeneration as the seed of life that's planted within us. And that seed produces righteousness. God's life implanted within the soul of man and that seed produces righteousness. That's why over in uh, 1 John 3 and verse 9, it says, no one who was born of God Practices sin. Why? Because his seed abides in him. You've, you've got a new life now. James chapter 3 and verse 18, you might want to jot this down. James three eighteen. it calls that seed the seed whose fruit is righteousness. You've been given a new life, a seed has been implanted in you, and the way that that, that seed works its way out is in righteousness. That seed, that new life has been given to you, and the fruit is righteousness. So what John is teaching us here is that Jesus came in order to give us the kind of life that frees us from the practice of sin. He gives us the kind of life that produces the fruit of righteousness. That's what he's come to give. And we often think about uh, sanctification uh, related to the role of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. And we know that's true. Romans uh, 8 and 13 uh, says, By the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body. But it is also Jesus who frees us from the practice of sin. Ephesians chapter 5, 25 and 26, it says, Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. Christ has a role in sanctifying us. It doesn't just free us from the penalty of our sins and justification. He also frees us from the power of our sin. And and, and lives that have been regenerated and are now united to him. Titus chapter two, verse 14, it says, he gave himself for us, speaking about Christ, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Good deeds worked out where? Right now on earth. Christ has come to purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. And that's why I say, if you're not celebrating Righteousness, you're not celebrating Christmas. If you're not celebrating righteousness, you're not celebrating Christ. If you get drunk at your holiday party, if you become discontent over what you didn't get, uh, if you start flirting with a coworker uh, or engage in some sinful activity, but it's all in the spirit of Christmas, don't fool yourself. You are not celebrating Christ. You're not celebrating Christmas if you're celebrating your sin. And don't try to convince yourself that what you're doing has anything to do with Christ. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. He appeared in order to practically take away the practice of sins. He gave himself up to purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. That was the purpose of, For his appearing. And if you want to know what honors Christ, the purpose of his appearing should tell you what honors Christ. It honors Christ that your sins would be destroyed, that you would give it up, that you would turn away from it. He appeared in order to take away your sins. He wants you to have more than a holly jolly Christmas. He wants you to have a holy, holy Christmas. That's what he wants you to have. But not only does the purpose of his appearing tell us what honors Christ, the nature of of his appearing tells us what honors Christ. What is the nature of his appearing? What what kind of life did we see appear? Verse five, and in him there is no sin. The, The entirety of Jesus's life was marked by holiness. And that was true of Jesus even from his conception. Luke chapter one, verse 35, it says, the angel answered Mary and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. From conception, Jesus was known as the Holy Child, Uh, which just as a footnote, God is recognizing life in the womb as being a child, right? Just as a side note, this is the Holy Child who was called the Son of God. From conception. Jesus was considered that holy child. From the womb, Jesus was the Son of righteousness. And that was true not just because he came from marrying, but because he came from heaven. He was God with us. And if you pay attention to the way that Jesus speaks about his personal history, he doesn't begin at conception. You know, sometimes when we talk about our own personal history, we might, you know, talk about where we were born. You know, I was born in New York. You know, might talk about where our parents came from. You know, my mom came from Jamaica. My dad came from North Carolina. But, but how about Jesus? When Jesus speaks about his personal history, what does he say? This is what he says. For I came down from heaven. John 3.31. He who comes from above is above all. He says this, John 8.23. I am from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. John sixteen twenty eight. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. And the reality is, is that Jesus was sinless, not because he came from Mary, but because he came from heaven. And even Mary confessed the need for a savior. Luke chapter one, verse 47. And my spirit has rejoiced, Mary says, in God, my savior. It wasn't Mary's sinlessness that made Jesus the holy child of Bethlehem. Jesus was sinless because he was the holy, holy one of heaven. But it was the the virgin birth that preserved the Holy One of heaven from any contamination from Joseph's seed. Uh, J. Gresham Machen, uh, in his uh, book, The The Virgin Birth, actually a a, a native uh, from Baltimore, uh, J. Gresham Machen, he writes this, If Jesus was conceived like all other men, then he stood under the Adamic curse like the rest of us who descend from Adam by natural generation. And he would not have been an acceptable savior of men before God. But this would mean, in turn, the end of Christianity as a redemptive religion, since there would then be no one who could offer himself up to God as an acceptable, unblemished sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile man to God. It had to be a virgin birth. Robert Raymond, in his Systematic Theology, writes While the virginal conception is not necessarily the total explanation for Jesus' sinlessness, it is a fact that if Jesus had been the offspring of the union of a human father and mother, such a natural generation would have entailed depravity and implicated Jesus in Adam's first sin. In other words, if Jesus was in Adam, then Jesus received the nature of Adam. Romans 5.19 says, For us through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. In 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two says, For as in Adam all die. The, the virgin birth preserved and protected the purity of Jesus Christ. But it wasn't the virgin birth that produced the purity of Jesus Christ. It didn't contribute to the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. It was the power of the Most High that overshadowed Mary. And for that reason, this was the Holy Child who was called the Son of God. But all throughout Jesus' life, that purity was tested, Right? Beginning in his ministry, he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After passing every temptation, Jesus said to Satan, go, for ye shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only, and the devil left him. Jesus defeated sin and temptation. During his ministry, Jesus' accusers came to Jesus, and Jesus could say, you know, which one of you convicts me of sin? I'll, I'll wait. <laughs> which one of you can convict me of sin? No, nobody could convict Jesus of sin. At the end of his ministry, he was put to the test in the garden, he went a little far, farther beyond his disciples, fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And again, Jesus demonstrated himself to be pure, to be sinless, to always submit himself to the Father's will. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews four fifteen says. Jesus could say to his disciples, the the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. (laughs) The the devil has nothing in me. Like like there's, there's no place in my life that I've ever given over to Satan. And that's true up until this present day. Jesus is without sin. It's in the present tense here. In him, there is no sin. He lived an entire life free from sin. And that would have been necessary for Jesus to be a worthy sacrifice for sin. Because if Jesus was a sinner he'd have to pay for his own sins. If Jesus was not sinless, he'd have his own sins to take care of, just like the priest who paid for their sins and then had to turn around and pay for the sins of others. So if Jesus was a sinner, he'd have to die for his own sins if that was the sacrifice. But Jesus Christ was sinless, the, the sinless, unblemished lamb of God, the unblemished and spotless blood of Christ, 1 Peter 18 says. Morally unblemished and spotless. But what does the sinlessness of Christ have to do with the destruction of my sin? Flip back to, to 1 John 3, if you're not there, 1 John 3. What does that have to do with my sin? Jesus Christ is sinless. We understand that. In him there's, there's no sin. I, I agree with that. But what does the sinlessness of Christ have to do with, with me and the destruction of sin? Think about the connection. Scripture says, in him there is no sin. But where does the believer abide? in him in him he abides in Christ through the power of the spirit actually the word abide is used throughout first john to speak of our salvation our connection to Jesus Christ in first john 4 and 15 it says whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God God abides in him and he in God first john 4:13 says by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit so we abide in Christ, or we abide in God. One of the frequent ways that John speaks about our salvation, our union with Jesus Christ, that we're in him. But here's the contradiction. How can I consider myself to be in him and in sin at the same time? If in him there is no sin. 1 John 2.6 says, the one who says he abides in him, you say you abide in him, then you ought to walk in the same manner as He walked. If I say that I'm connected to Jesus Christ and in him there's no sin, in me I should be free from sin. I should be seeking to be free from sin. Sin is incompatible with the one who says he's abiding in Christ. It shows a disdain for the authority of God, a disregard for the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse verse 6, the next verse down. It says, no one who abides in him sins. And no one who sins has seen him or knows him. What does it mean to see? You know, to see in this context isn't talking about seeing him physically. You know, John knows that these believers haven't physically seen Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that uh, you really don't have a a true perception of who he is. If If you think that you can be in Christ and in your sin at the same time, you don't really know who Jesus is. You don't really have a good idea of who Jesus is if you think you can be in him and in your sin at the same time. You may talk a lot about him but you don't have a real understanding of him. This is the Holy One of heaven. This is the one in whom there is no sin. And if I think that Jesus is okay with me and my sin, I don't know Jesus. I don't really know him. If I think he's okay with me and my sin. And to know him, that's a a word of relationship. It's the Greek word gnosko. You know, it says no one has seen him or knows him. That word gnosko speaks about a relational knowledge. And John is saying if you're practicing sin and you're claiming to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how much you might talk about him. It's not a true relationship. To say that I have a relationship with Christ, but I still maintain my relationship with my sins, it can't be the same. Like, one has to go. One has to go. And it's actually here in the perfect tense, which says that you never had that relationship, regardless of what you might want to claim. So John is not saying that, again, that believers don't sin, We have an advocate with the Father when we do sin, but he's saying that we don't practice our sins and we shouldn't be deceived into thinking that we're true believers if we're living in an unbroken pattern of habitual, consistent, characterizing sins. We cannot call ourselves believers. And then the very next verse, John says this in verse seven, little children, make sure no one deceives you. Why? Because there's gonna be a lot of people who want to deceive you. A lot of people are gonna say, hey, it's okay. How many churches today are condoning and tolerating sins? Redefining what sin is. It's an alternate lifestyle, it's okay. You know, God's okay with that. Don't let anybody deceive you. What the scripture says is you cannot continue maintain an unbroken habitual pattern of sin and still claim to be a believer. It's not true. Don't be deceived. Sin can no longer be the ruling principle of your life as a believer. It's been broken. It's been broken. Why? Because Jesus has come to break it. (laughs) And he's given you a new life in order to break it. It's been broken. The power of sin has been broken in your life if you're a believer. Because Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. That's what he's come for. Sin can no longer be the ruling principle of your life. It does not control the believer. Sin is not holding the remote control in your life anymore, okay? It's not not controlling what you do. The child of God has made a break with sin. And John is saying that those who practice sin and lawlessness show a disdain for the authority of God. They show a disregard for the work of Christ. They show a disinterest in any relationship with God. And you don't need to be fooled by thinking anything different. This is what the scripture says. This is what Christ has come for. Are you ready for Christmas? <laughs> Are you ready for Christmas? In the year uh, 1665 to 1666, there was a great plague in London. It was uh, the last epidemic of the bubonic plague to occur in England. Uh, the great plague occurred, and one resource says it killed an estimated Hundred thousand people in one city. So, so, one out of every four people in the period of eighteen months died. Think about one out of every four people that you know right now dying. That's that's the kind of plague that happened. It was called the Great Plague in London. Four years after the introduction of this plague, a book was published in 1669, and the authors, in the author's words, his book was begun and almost finished before the late sore and great plague began. And therefore, as a memorial of it, he says, I've taken occasion to give it a name or a title from thence. Ralph Venning, the author of this book, he titled his book, The Plague of Plagues. But his book was not about the bubonic plague. It was about the greater plague. It was about the plague of sin. And today, the same book is known by the title, The Sinfulness of Sin. And he referred to sin as the plague of plagues. He wrote about the the universal mischief that sin has done to mankind. Listen to what he wrote. He says, Nothing is so evil as sin. Nothing is evil but sin. As the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us, so neither the sufferings of this life nor of that to come are worthy to be compared with the evil of sin. No evil is displeasing to God or destructive to man but the evil of sin. Sin is worse than affliction. It's worse than death. It's worse than the devil. It's worse than hell. Affliction is not so afflictive. Death is not so deadly. The devil is not so devilish. And hell is not so hellish as sin is. The four evils I've just named, affliction, death, the devil, and hell, are truly terrible. And from all of them, everyone is ready to say, good Lord, deliver us. Yet none of these, nor all of them together, are as bad as sin. Therefore, our prayer should be... To be delivered from sin. And if God hear no prayer else, yet as to this, we should say, We beseech thee, hear us, good Lord. Deliver us from sin. And when Jesus came, what did he come to do? He came to deliver us from sin. That's what he came to do. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Jesus was sent on a sin-destroying mission. That's what we should think about. That's what we should be celebrating. That's what should bring us joy this season. Amen. Amen. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. No more let sins and sorrows grow, grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his what? His righteousness and wonders of his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a Savior who has come to destroy sin. He's come on a a mission to seek and to destroy. And uh, Father, we, we thank you that that we have a Savior who's come to take away not just the, the penalty of our sins and not just the presence of sins in the future, but even right now, the power of sin has been broken in our lives because of Jesus Christ. And, Father, the way that we honor Jesus Christ during this season is that our sins would be destroyed, that we would willingly come with our sins, that we would willingly ask you to take them away, that we would not hold on to our sins, Father, that we would honor you by by living in righteousness because that's what Christ has come for. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.